Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for Friends, some awesome. welcome back to the show. We've got our beloved friend from Abilene, Texas, Richard Beck, with us today. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, Luke. Glad to be with you. You know what else we're going to be with together, be with, with each other? That's a better way to say that. You know where we're going to be uh, in May together, Richard? We're going to be at Harbor in Malibu? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, the one person who doesn't love the opportunity to go to Malibu, Richard Beck, is making his, like a Palm Sunday, his triumphal return yeah, to I, the I, campus I'm of Pepperdine. Going back, but, you know, I don't, I don't like it. You know, it's too happy, too it's much too, fun. It's too, too pretty. Much it's too pretty. Joy. Yeah. Yeah, and but you're going to be there. Uh, there's going to be some pl- plenty of other outstanding speakers who are going to be there. Um, James K. A. Smith is going to be there. Have you heard some of his stuff? Oh yeah, I'm reading his book on Augustine right now. Ooh, yeah, that's that's better than me. Um, what are you going to be teaching about, by the way? I'm going to be a part of a group uh, a group talk about kind of the missional church. Okay, are you for or against? I am for it. I'm for the mission okay. of God and joining the mission of God in the world. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, you're going to be there. Um, Suzanne Stabile of Enneagram fame. You know Suzanne, don't you? I do know Suzanne, she yeah. Oh, she came to Highland. Did you meet her while you were there? I didn't meet her, but I met her at a conference and uh, loved, loved that time. And so, yeah, looking forward okay. to being with her again. Well, she is going to be out there. Uh, you know, a lot of great people and also Jonathan Storm will be out there. <laughs> the, uh, the guy who wrote Canoeing the Mountains, a very popular book, Todd Bolsinger. Do you know that name? I don't know that name. No, I've heard the book title, though. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird because I have been in a few mountains, but I've never had a canoe with me, which seems like a poor thing to bring into a mountain, canoeing the mountain. But, you know, yeah. go to a session, you learn why you need a canoe in the mountain. But uh, the date for that is, you know what that is, Richard? you know the date? It's in May. I have to look at my yep. calendar. May 5th through 8th, registration is now open. There's a link in the show notes where you can find all the information you need. But you know what? The only information you need is be there. Join us. It'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, now, and, and, Richard, and it is beautiful there in all truthfulness. It's stunning. Hey, that that's a sign of growth, Richard. For you to say that, you can have said that a couple years ago. I'm trying to get in good with Mike Cope. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That <laughs> good for you. Is it more beautiful than the surprisingly snow-covered grounds of Abilene Christian University today? I don't know. Like I love snow. I grew up in Pennsylvania. You know that you're a Pennsylvanian, uh, mm-hmm. and yeah, we got like six inches of snow out here. It's crazy. So school wow. is shut down. So, but I I drove through the slush and the snow to do this podcast with you. Wow, that's a lot of love. Now, it would be more meaningful, not that this isn't meaningful, but it would be more meaningful if the old Richard Beck would have traversed his way to the office with his uh, bicycle and blue jean shorts. That would have meant the most to me. You being here is a lot, but it's, it would have been more if it was the bicycle that you used to get to work yeah, today. Yeah, that's, that's true. I didn't do that. But Those were the good old days. I still ride my bike, man. I still, I'm still a bike commuter. I love it. Okay. Well, uh, the snowy ground covers uh, Abilene Christian. You know, there was, uh, there was a Colorado man on the podcast recently, one John Eldridge, who you might remember from Wild at Heart, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he made a comment about uh, Denver and Colorado Springs. Surprisingly, in his opinion, as a Color- Coloridian, is that the right word? Color- I'm going to go with it. Okay, Colorado, as a native it's Coloridian. Be- it's better than like a Colorite. That sounds like a disease. Hey, what happened? I got that cholerite. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a disease. Cholerite is better up. than cholerite. 
Yeah, he said those cities are surprisingly not that pretty. If he saw Abilene, he would say, wow, this is surprisingly very pretty today because of the snow. Yeah, because it's all covered up. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's it. You know, we uh, we had him on the podcast. Storm brought up your old um, line about how to tell, uh, you know, if someone's gone to grad school because of their opinion on uh, Wild at Heart. Oh, yeah. Remember saying that? Yeah, I do. That's, uh-huh. that's you, right? I said that. You know, he, we were using the podcast, and I had a, a, a lot of people say, I really like that guy. I was really impressed. There's some people who are grad school people who were like, I'm not, I'm not excited about this episode. They listened to it. We're impressed with him. Yeah, I think we probably make some judgments from a distance about a lot of stuff, you know. So that's good. That's good that, you know, people gave it a listen. And I mean, I think that kind of graciousness is good. It's important. I mean, that's, yeah. no, I, I mean, I, you know, I don't think I'm going to learn a lot from your books, but, but I read them anyway. <laughs> ow, 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 it's Richard coming in strong today. I'm just kidding. I'm excited about your book on monsters coming out. Yeah, I mean, because I stole some of it from you. No, no. I, I didn't, re- I, I didn't, it is, you know, it's a great book, which you can pre-order now. Um <laughs> It wasn't until afterwards that I realized, oh, yeah, I got this from Richard Beck. And then I went back and was like, oh, you wrote a blog literally 11 years ago on monsters. This was in your, like, Lady Gaga heyday on the blog. Yeah. And you did a thing about, um, uh, what was it? Uh, I I go through, like, different kind of monsters. But I think you're going in a different direction looking at your table of contents. Yeah, I mean, it's the better direction. But it's... uh, (laughs) But your your phrase, uh, uh, epistemi- uh, it's not epistemological. It's just uh, the the limits of knowledge. Monsters re- reside. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Where? Uh-huh. What is the phrase used for? You don't remember that from like epistem- that long ago? I don't know, but like something like epistemological horizons or something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Where? But, but I was like, yeah. There's a little shout out to Richard Beck on there in the book. You're welcome. Yeah, there you go. I'm excited about it. When you see all the blog traffic, you can just say. Thanks, Luke, for when the book comes out. <laughs> Speaking of your book, our, we have one of our uh, growth groups. We don't call them Bible classes at our church because we're more refined. Um, but one of our growth groups is working through your Johnny Cash book. And I'm hearing great stuff. People like it. Oh, really? That's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, they're working way through yeah, train, it. Yeah, so trains Jesus and murder. Yeah, out now. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you feel it was Aiden who came up with that uh, description of Johnny Cash's yeah. catalog? Yeah, I was driving him to school and he said Johnny Cash sings about three things: trains, Jesus, and murder. And it's a great title. You know what's weird is my my dad mostly talks to me about trains, Jesus, and uh, it's not murder, but he does like trains and Jesus a lot. So your, your dad like does like model trains, like that's his yeah. that's a thing. Yeah, I mean. Everyone has a dad who does stuff that's kind of like. Ah, was he doing that when you like, were a kid? When he was, was he doing that mm-hmm. when you were a kid? I would have turned out much worse if he would have been doing a lot of that when I was a kid. He did it like around the holidays, like you're supposed to, like put it around oh, the Christmas okay, tree. Yeah. But since then, this addiction has gone full blown, and it's um, like yeah, now, it's, like it's, now that he's retired, he's doing it more. I don't know if he's doing it more, but like in his old age, he just started doing. Trains. Uh, it, it could be worse. When he, he, uh, yeah, when he worked for me, I should have had him like make a train track between our offices so our, all of our interdepartmental mail could be on. You know, we just put a letter in the train and it would take it to the you know, offices. 
I know you probably can't get him up there to teach one class just for fun anymore, but I bet if you offered him to do that as an employee of the psych department, he would probably jump at that opportunity more than anything else. Yeah, director of mail and trains. We we should do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there we go. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, some people think your title is the director of progressive Christianity uh, I, I see a lot of people just like, you know, you know, Beck's pr- progressive Christian. And a few months ago, you almost lost that title when you said that you are post-progressive now. And do you think that progressive Christianity has come crumbling down just because of this blog series, or is it other things? Well, I got some pushback on the blog series. A lot of people disagree with me. So it resonated. Like it? Well, I mean, it, I got a lot of reactions to it. And some people really liked it, and other people felt like, uh, no, I mean, the, the, the things I was articulating are, are able to be blended into the progressive Christian witness or whatever like that. But yeah, um, yeah, but it was, it was a series of kind of uh, criticisms or observations that I was trying to articulate where over the last couple of years I've kind of felt like I'd moved to a different location, and I just wanted to kind of give a name to that location. And so I wasn't retreating back to a conservative position. But I, I felt like I'd moved on. So I was still progressive. And I think that was the confusion. People felt like I had moved on from progressive. But no, when you're post-progressive, you still have a foundation there. So there's some DNA. But but in another sense, you've moved on. In, and I think the word post is often used to insert kind of a critical aspect. So there's more criticisms yeah. in my progressive Christianity than, than perhaps there used to be. Mm-hmm. Now – I'm not uh, a writer with the same library of books with my name on the spines like you are. You've obviously written a lot more than me. But one of the things that I have learned is that adverbs are often looked down upon because that's weak writing. If you have to use an adverb to describe something, it's because you didn't get a good enough verb in the first place. And, um, you know, Christianity, when you have to have an adjective to it, does it in some ways kind of weaken what the word means? Like, so what is the the benefit of having like a description of what kind of Christian you are, because isn't like Christian kind of like this big, old, inclusive kind of phrase that like we kind of like divide out with our little subcategories of it? No, no. I mean, I get that. And, and some people, some people, that was the reaction to the series. They're like, oh, here's another label. Yeah. Um, and so there's a, I think, a general weariness in, on, on a lot of social media about, you know, in, about more labels. And so the fact that I invented yet another label um, was was too much for some people, um, and, and I agree with that. I, I mean, I, I think we can get caught up in labels, but yet I, I do think you know words words help us navigate um, the terrain. And and if you want to quickly kind of locate kind of where somebody is, some of these some of these labels can be can be useful. That's why they exist. It's not mm-hmm. I didn't create the label to throw anybody under the bus or create a tribe or to create a movement. I was just trying to articulate kind of where I was and in words you have to use words to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in Arkansas you can just make sounds. I think that's part of their <laughs> you just grunt. communication. <laughs> just, just, just run. run. Which is why people love Stormont's sermons a whole lot more now than they oh, used to, because it's mostly just grunting and sweating. That's it. You always um, draw me into Stormont issues, you know. And I, <laughs> I love both of you, and I feel like I get I get tugged into this 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 tension between you two. It's okay. Yeah. Like I know I'm Joseph to his like Reuben or whatever he is, oh, but uh, that's all right. That's cool. Uh, but there. 
But there is important conversation for us to have about this. And so you did an 11-part blog post. This was back, what, uh, like July of last year? Yeah. Something like that? Okay. Uh, so y- you talked about these 11 different categories. And if you're going to give like a working definition of like progressive Christian, uh, you mentioned a lot of things that when I think of like how I would define someone as a progressive, it's views on church, Bible, salvation, sexuality, science, th- that sort of stuff. How how would you give like a thumbnail description for what a progressive Christian is, though? Oh wow, um, I think I think some of it is uh, can be described as political. Like, so progressive Christians will tend to be more on the political left, um, where evangelicals be on the political right. Um, because they're on the political left, they're going to read the Bible differently. So they tend to be more inclusive of. Um, LGBTQ people, they're going to be more interested in social justice. Um, they're going to be uh, more concerned about science and integrating science into the way they read the Bible. And um, I also think there's a strain of progressive Christianity that that privileges kind of doubt and deconstruction. And uh, so they would lean more into questions than they will be leaning into kind of answers or any sort of dogmatic fundamentalism. And there's other things that progressive are known for, like they're, they struggle a great deal with like penal substitutionary atonement. They're concerned about that. They, they have a, they're concerned about the, mor- the kind of the moral witness of the Bible from the genocidal passage in the Old Testament to the household co- codes in Paul. And, and so, so no one issue, I think, defines them. Um, but but a kind of a constellation of issues that I've just named and maybe others as well that kind of broadly has been described as kind of progressive or liberal Christianity. Yeah. Uh, is it Jonathan Haidt who had um, like the different motivators for conservatives versus liberals? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Is, is that right? He had like the, the four things that uh, liberals uh, tend to be in, influenced by and like the two things that – uh, conservatives are, and I'm trying to think of what the list is. Uh, there's fairness, a, yeah. There's fairness uh, and uh, justice. There's harm and care, and then there's uh, respect for authority, and then purity, sanctity. So purity and respect for authority is conservatives, and liberals are more the justice, inclusion, equality. What were they? Yeah, t- I mean, typically, I mean, uh, the conservatives appeal to all of them. To be clear, so I want to play fair here. Yeah, so con- conservatives will appeal to all four of the moral foundations, but liberals will tend to restrict their moral reasoning to fairness and harm. And that kind of puts them on a liberal progressive trajectory because when they look at a political situation or a moral situation, they're not going to really be concerned about tradition or authority, you know, and that would be biblical religious authority. And they're not going to let look at like purity or sanctity codes. They're going to basically saying, is somebody being treated unfairly here? And is somebody being harmed? And if the answer is that these people are being treated unfairly and these people are being harmed, they're going to move in that direction. And so that's where you're going to see progressive Christians kind of lean towards a liberationist hermeneutic. They're going to use scripture to stand with the people being harmed or the people being treated unfairly. And so that's where you can kind of see the fusion of their theology and their moral psychology with kind of the progressive uh, political stance where they often uh, are found. Yeah, it, it's just interesting that, uh, like you're able to say, like the, the political leanings influence the way you read the Bible, and the motivators you have are the lens through which you interpret Scripture. And you, I don't want to say privilege or or highlight, but uh, honestly, that's that's what's happening is that you know each side has a tendency to highlight and privilege one thing over the other, even though you know all those things need to be in play. 
Yeah, and I think that's what why Hate's work is interesting because he, when he kind of deploys those four moral grammars, he's kind of given it kind of an explanation for why we often kind of talk past each other because we're often yep. playing with a different set of cards, and so we play different verses, we privilege those verses differently, and uh, our case seems solid, but the you know the other group's case seems stranger off and it's just because they're coming at it from a very different perspective now that said one of the reasons i wrote the progressive the post-progressive christianity uh, series was that i'd felt that progressive christianity had become like the evangelicals too too political mm-hmm. um that that it, it it was almost just it, it seemed like almost progressive christianity was just the 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 democratic christians Yep. Where evangelicals were the Republican Christians. And so there was an excessive politicization that I had saw on the progressive Christianity side of things that, that made me kind of uh, raise some criticisms about that. Yeah, I, I, I was a fan of uh, Jim Wallace's stuff, uh, God's Politics. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, where, you know, it's God's not a Republican, which was kind of the, the pendulum that needed to be swung, like, let's get away from this idea. But then you see that same crowd all of a sudden becoming uh, those who are campaigning for people on the left, and you go, wait a minute, you, you just said this is not partisan like this, and all of a sudden you're doing the exact same thing. So, yeah, you clearly see that. And, you know, one of the things you talk about in a series on, on social justice, or the post on social justice, is I think that the actual title is social justice, but it's still church. And I heard I heard a progressive recently, you know, express their frustration because they feel as though their work has been futile. They're not really doing anything to make a difference, even though they have been a pastor of a church for years. And you go, wait a minute, like, isn't the church the way that we make a difference? And sometimes our way of making a difference is simply, are we, you know, getting people to vote for whatever candidate that we're we're endorsing? So. How do we move the idea of that social justice is still important, that the gospel isn't just what gets you into heaven when you die, but it's it affects here, but this doesn't become the totality of what the gospel means? Yeah, and so this is where I would be like post-progressive. So I'm um, progressive, like I said in the series, in the sense that social justice, uh, political activism, you know, perfecting our union um, is still – I'm passionate about all of that. Uh, but I'm post-progressive, and it seems like the progressive Christian conversation has almost wholly left the church behind. It seems like the progressive Christian imagination uh, is almost wholly political. Like the only levers that we have to change the world are winning the next election. Yep. And is and and again, I'm progressive enough to say elections are important, very important. But I, I just don't hear a lot from progressive Christians about the church. In fact, I hear more of them leaving the church. They don't. Have, they don't go to church. A lot of them don't go to church. And mm-hmm. and and so I wrote one of you know one of the things I wrote about was that I'm post post progressive in that I have a very robust vision of how the church is how God is going to save the world and not Washington D.C. not Rome, uh, not Brussels and not London. I mean. Uh, the center of power in God's imagination is those intimate local places where the kingdom of God shows up. Yeah, because sometimes with the idea of it's uh, it is Washington, it is the next election, it is you know whatever we do right now, the the gospel can be reduced to just being a good person. And I'm a good person because I take care of the environment. You know, I have the right political convictions. I don't hurt people. And therefore, that's what it means to be a person. And who follows Jesus? And you go, well, that seems to be watered down if it's just being a good person and misses something, right? Yeah, I think 
um, that move where we have kind of, and I think it's, it's kind of one of the interesting things that's happened with the Protestant imagination over the last 500 years where Christianity has become about being, yeah, being a good person, um, a moralized vision of the faith. Now, conservatives have their vision of what a moral person looks like, right? They're, they're sexually mm-hmm. pure, you know, they're, they're, they don't drink alcohol, right? They have their vision of what that mm-hmm. good person is. And, 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 and liberals do too, and progressives, right? A social justice warrior is their vision of a good person. They are fighting the fight. But if, if that's all the faith is, uh, then – and it's not ultimately about God, um, but just about uh, the revolution – then, then there's a variety of things that can got, kind of go wrong there, and you know, and one of them is that you know God and the church and the Bible and Christ become fairly irrelevant because one can do all of that political stuff, one can march in a parade, um, and not believe in any of it. So there's got to be more to this if we're going to be Christian. I'm not saying you have to be Christian, right? You could be a humanist, you could be an atheist, but if you are going to be a Christian, then what's what's the distinctive? Uh, part of that beyond uh, liberal political action. That, that's kind of yeah. what I'm after. Yeah, and so there's an, uh, an eschatology that's beyond just here now that there's something else that's a part of it. And one of the things that surprised me in your, uh, in your post, you, you had one on hell, that, uh, that it's part of the equation – because so the line is from the blog post: in the face of death, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Which obviously is you know Pauline scripture right there. Um, that's Paul, right? Yes. That's Paul. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you did you were in a documentary on on the afterlife a couple years ago. Do you remember this? Yeah, uh, Hellbound and Hellbound. There it was. And I remember you being quoted, and I thought you said something about when it comes to the afterlife, I'm somewhat agnostic, which seems like a Richard Beck kind of thing to say. Yeah. Would How would you, do you think those two things are in competition with that quote, in the face of death, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, and being somewhat agnostic about the, uh, the afterlife? Well, I think... Um, those well, maybe my di- books and my sermons have helped you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, they, they haven't really helped me much. But uh, ouch! I'm just kidding. No, saying, um, my sermon, my sermon the last Sunday in December, I think was was it on hell? Holiday. What was it? Were you pre- are you preaching about hell? It was about being kind. You needed that to be kind to. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, no. I mean, those are two different things. I mean, I think those are two different things. So the how so the thing the thing I was writing about in the in the post progressive series was how. Um, because that there seems to be a lack of an eschatological imagination among post-progressives um, in regards to heaven and the hope and the consolation of heaven. And again, this is all big ball of yarn here, but the reasons for this are because there's a lot of deconstruction and doubt in progressive circles. And so the idea here is, is these kind of very robust articulations of the afterlife and judgment day and all of those kinds of things are hard to believe in for a lot of progressives. And so they are they so the kingdom of God is about right here, right now. Right. And that kind of connects with that political action, right? Yeah. The kingdom yeah, yeah. of God is right here, right now. I don't know if there's an afterlife, but 
hell is, you know, the, the hell I create for myself with my addiction or, uh, the hell of consumerism, right? And, or, uh, the kingdom is, I don't know if there's a heaven, but I can dig a well in Africa and the kingdom of God comes on earth as it is in heaven. But it's getting, it's getting to a point where it seems like in the face of death, any mention of heaven is almost scandalous. In fact, it's almost taken as a truism now in many sectors of progressive Christianity that any mention of heaven in the face of death is traumatizing. Like, tell, you, tell me more about why it's a traumatizing and how it's a truism. Well, I mean, it's traumatizing in the sense like the, when you hear progressives talk about this, they'll say, you know, when we face grief and we have a loss, a death in a church or in a, in a thing, that, that one should not bring up heaven because to bring up heaven would be to dismiss the grief, to put it aside. Now, I want to be very clear here. I have seen heaven deployed crudely, too quickly, too simplistically, where it has done harm to grieving people. It's, it, it is, heaven is the neat and tidy bow that you put on this trauma. And, and, and so I want to be clear about that. That said, um, it, it seems like we've got to a place that we are grieving in, in progressive Christianity. We are grieving as if there is no hope. Um, and, and, and so to me, that, that was one of the things. So I, I was worried about the politicaz- politicalization of progressive Christianity, but I was also worried about how Christianity has so deconstructed itself that it's almost nihilistic in one sense that, that any, that heaven is just, you can't go there. And I think there's something problematic uh, with that. And it's not just that heaven is consolation. I think there's many things that an eschatological imagination helps in the Christian witness. Like here's an example, like pacifism. People like Stanley Hauerwas have argued that pacifism, giving your life um, away uh, so that you know, rather than kill somebody, you would, you would be killed, only makes sense if there's a heaven. Because if there is no heaven, if this is the only life we have, then obviously you should act in self-defense. And so there's certain moral witnesses in Christianity that demand an eschatological uh, imagination. And so, um, so anyway, that the issue of heaven is one of the places where I have been thinking a lot about about how it functions or actually doesn't function in progressive Christian circles. Hmm. Now that's different from hell, like. Yes. So, but one of the things I did say in that Hellbound series is that we need the language of hell. Um, again, because we need an eschatological perspective on what's happening right now. And so, I, I, whether or not people, because we can talk about hell a long time. I've written a, a lot about that on, on my blog, about what I think about all that. But I, I think the, the idea that God stands in kind of some sort of transcendent judgment upon human affairs is, is the language of damnation, right? It is God's mm-hmm. judgment upon, it's the prophetic imagination. Uh, and so I think uh, that's a different thing than the consolation of heaven, um, thinking through the judgment and the condemnation of God upon current human affairs. And that's another weird thing about progressive Christianity, where they might not believe in the afterlife or believe in hell, but yet they do believe in the prophetic tradition, where God God says a no to injustice and oppression, and that's the language of judgment, right? God's going to punish this wickedness. 
And if it doesn't get fixed in this lifetime, it'll get fixed in the next lifetime. Um, and so I think progressives are very comfortable with the prophetic tradition. Uh, but but to me, that's where that judgment comes from, is that divine indictment of the status quo. Is that also tied to a you know pacifist stance that, you know, if vengeance isn't the Lord's, then um, I feel the need that I need to take vengeance upon myself. I mean, I, I talked to uh, uh, David Bentley Hart about this, and because I, I feel like that's you know Miroslav Volf's argument that if if God doesn't have the vengeance, then there's going to be a need for me to to rectify the situation here and now. And then of course David Bentley Hart, who uh, I don't know if you've ever heard him speak, uh, but. Um, he is not one to uh, be stingy on doling out the sarcasm. Right. And yeah. so he, uh, in his very sardonic way, said, well, you know, we don't have a good imagination for what God's justice is or something like that, if that's all we can think of. That, it has to be bigger than that. But do you, do you see heaven and hell as, uh, you know, foundational uh, for, for our willingness to forgive and to, to choose ways other than violence towards others? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying yeah. that you need you need there needs to be some eschatological ag- imagination. Otherwise, if if this, if the kingdom of God has to be um, if it arrives within history, right, mm-hmm. it, as the product of our work, so the kingdom of God will arrive within history. That's that that's the revolution. Okay. That, 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 so, that's utopianism, right? We we will bring the kingdom of God within history ourselves, and that that we know where that tends. That tends to bloodshed, right? We have to then identify the bad actors, eliminate the bad actors, and bring the kingdom of God, you know, within history. And I think an eschatological. Now, to be clear, I, I understand that we don't want to kind of always delay the. The kingdom of God, right? That's there's a temptation the other way too, where you just reconcile yourself to the oppression currently happening because you know God's going to fix it later on. So that's we need to keep the tension between there. There will be un the eschatological imagination says there's going to be unfinished business within history, and so therefore I can give my life away as a part of the cause because the cause, right? That contribution will matter. Um, in the long arc of of history, but in addition, I can also do the work I need to do and realize that I am not going to see the kingdom of God in my lifetime, and I can be patient mm-hmm. um, because it's in God's hands. So yes, there is a there's a need for that. If because if you lose that, and by the way, I think this is one of the problems with one of the reasons why progressive Christianity is so political because because of their doubt. Yep. They've lost their eschatological imagination, which means they have to achieve the kingdom of God within history, which means every election now is ultimately important. Those all go together. Yeah. So it leads to a moral restraint in that we can uh, act with, uh, with faith in what is to come, hope in what is to come, so that we, we can change our disposition right now. But to circle back to the, the piece about grief— the the biblical language of we do not grieve as those who have no hope. How do you see that as a as someone who is in some ways you're reacting against the way that heaven has worked as this sort of panacea that you put on pain and it becomes this nice nice neat bow that kind of simplifies the complexity of someone's grief. But what is a a way that 
the hope of what is to come can function as uh, as some sort of uh, you know life vest in the you know in the seas of our our grief and pain. Well, I mean. Really? I mean, for 2,000 years, Christians have been consoling themselves in the face of death with, with the prospect of reunion and seeing our loved ones again. And, you know, like, like, um, like, like that, that has been uh, in, in generations past with people gathered around the dead. Heaven has been not traumatizing to them not triggering to them. It has been the way we have always as a faith consoled ourselves, you know? Um, and the reason why I think heaven is increasingly traumatizing to Christians is because of the pervasive disenchantment and doubt. Since we don't believe it anymore, um, you know, it's not, it doesn't console. It's, it, it's, it seems a cheapening of our, of our pain. And so something's, and we can talk about this. I mean, this is kind of far afield, but one of the things I've reflected on a lot is just there, something has happened in the last couple generations. In a hundred years, our, our relationship with death has changed dramatically. And because of that, the way we grieve and the way we console ourselves is radically different. The way people consoled themselves in 1900. And the way we console ourselves in 2020 is very different, and and I think a lot of it is is our again our existential relationship with death. Death is now a surprise, a shock, an intrusion. You know, and this is my work on the pornography of death, where our current yeah, yeah. culture our current culture pretends death doesn't exist, and then when death shows up, we're like we feel like some sort of cosmic agreement, some sort of cosmic bargain has been broken. So the most yep. obvious, the almost obvious fact about our human existence that all of us are going to die, right? This is the most obvious fact is somehow like a shock to everybody. Yeah. And, and so, uh, yeah, so that's a long conversation about all of that. And, and I think it does show up in progressive circles more often because their imagination tends to be haunted more by doubt and secularism. Yeah. When, so you were a basketball player a few years ago, but uh, I, I know you've probably kept up and obviously the story about Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, a week ago, week and a half ago at this point. Um, one of the reflections I, I had after that was that sudden deaths often feel surreal because we be, believe the lie that we're permanent. And the truth is that that death is what's real, and what is not real is our belief that we're immortal. And it, it seems that, like, would you say one of the things that's different now than 100 years ago is that we're so distant from death, that d- death has been kind of, uh, and, and this is, uh, what is his name, Confessions of a Funeral Home Director, um, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the things that he talks about in his book is that, uh, Caleb, is that right? I think so. I think that's right. Sure. Um, that he talked about how, like, it, we bring, you know, a, a dead body out the back door of a nursing home, and if it does happen at all, it's going to be, you know, in a hospital away from our home. And so we're so far removed from it. Is that what you're pointing to is one of the things that's made us grieve so differently? Yeah. Over the last hundred years, things like the funeral, the rise of modern medicine. So we don't die at home anymore. We die in hospitals. And we don't display – so we don't tend to the dead bodies of our family and our loved ones. Um, also, uh, birth, you know, maternal and infant mortality rates were very high. 
those occurred in the home. So so now death has been pushed off into hospitals. And then with the rise of modern hospitals, when we weren't dying at home anymore, you know, we created the, the funeral industry, right? And so professionals handle the body, and we don't ever handle the body. And so death itself has been kind of marginalized and pushed off to the professionals. Also, life expectancies. Now, you know, all of us those have been on the rise steadily, and that is a great blessing from science. But if we don't live to 80 now, we feel like some sort of, you know, that that's a shock. That's, that's yeah, we got ripped off. So, so increasing life expectancies, the rise of the modern hospitals, the funeral industry, and then the food industry is another one, right? That we, we are not intimately participating in the way we feed ourselves and the death that takes place to put protein on the table. So those are just a couple of different things that have, that have kind of pushed death out of the modern American psyche. Add to that the illusion of youthfulness, right? We're trying to – so from our workouts to the Pelotons to the to the uh, women dye their hair or concerned about wrinkles, guys trying to look like – have six-pack abs when they're 40, right? Like we're obsessed with this sense that we will always be young. And there's a delusional aspect to the way Americans act in relation to death. And so then when death then finally shows up, uh, yeah, we freak. You know, and then we we accuse God of breaking an agreement um, with yeah. us, and and then and so the idea that heaven would be of consoling there, we find that outrageous because this life is the only life that matters. Yeah, that's good. That's so accurate. the uh, The line at the end of the Nicene Creed about how we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come that has been very uh, meaningful to me recently. Is that the like the active looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life to come, which that is very uncommon and unfamiliar to, to me. But I think the Nicene Creed is like reminding us, like this is what Christians have thought and prayed and, and uh, lived into for, for hundreds, hundreds of years. So uh, good stuff there. Um, I want to make a transition. So you talked about the kind of metamorphosis of your faith started off conservative, um, as did mine, and it started there. It's moved somewhere, moved somewhere else, and this like this process of kind of growth, of change, of of you know trying to figure out what, what is this look like now. The 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 centrality of trying to use words to describe as a way, just like giving a marker, helps us do this. And I I, I seem to uh, get these emails every so often of people who've gone through this sort of change, and they're trying to figure out like. What do I do? Where do I go next? Um, I, I'm going to read one, uh, a line or two from one of the emails I got not too long ago. Okay. And uh, we can respond to it after that. Uh, this person said, I, I wrestle with my, quote, church life a lot, and I love and appreciate my upbringing and want desperately to move forward with my church family. I also struggle with the concept of why disrupt something that is working for so many. I don't want to leave, and I also feel like I can't stay. Once you see some things, you can't unsee them and you can't go back where you began. We will journey forward and see how it unfolds. So I think that's important for someone like you because you've stayed in the Church of Christ. The, the church that you, uh, in, in some ways, the tradition that you were born into is the, the one you're still participating in now. Uh, for some, they feel like they can't stay. They've, they've got to go somewhere else. How has this been something that you've been able to kind of navigate without having to, quote unquote, leave your tradition? Yeah, and I'm going to have to speak just personally about this because I think other people have to make different – their own determinations. And I, and I struggle with emails like this too 
because it's very hard to adjudicate from a distance the functionality of the person that's speaking to you and the functionality of the church they're speaking to. You know, and and I don't know. I can't say how well any of that is. Um and uh so I have been so one thing I would say is I I have been able to be hospitable to the more traditional people in my movement. Well, and I'll admit it, right? Because I'm a privileged person, right? I'm a I'm a white male, and so I can tolerate some of the uh, status quo because I've benefited from so long. So I, I just got to confess that on the front end. That said. I also have a great deal of hospitality for my more traditional or conservative brothers and sisters because I, I know where they're coming from. Like they're they're not wackos. Um, the, you know, they they I understand how they have connected the dots because that's the way I used to connect the dots, and so I have great sympathy for how they read the Bible, and I understand where they're coming from. And so some people might not be able to tolerate that if they if. If they haven't grown up in a tradition they love, and that's another thing, right? Like, so this is a sense of identity. These are the people that baptized me. These are the people that raised me. And I don't know if people have that sort of legacy with one faith tradition. Hmm. They might, they might have grown up. Well, I mean, if you're going to, if, if you're, if you're going to some like non-denominational evangel, van, you know, evangelical church on some street, right? What's what's the long history there, right? Uh, that's just a, you know, that's just a standalone non-denominational, you know. Uh, church uh, run, you know, led by Pastor Pastor Rick. I mean, like it doesn't have um, where it's the church is. Yeah. Right, the Church of Christ is is a it, it's a it, it was a it's a, a a tradition that that I was a part of. And then it's I think you have right? yeah, and so you can get you get kind of fondnesses for these traditions because of the way they raised you. Like, have you seen that Bruce Springsteen uh, his on Broadway uh, show? Um, on Netflix. No, I unfortunately have not. But I have no, seen no. the new documentary on cheerleading called Cheer. Yeah. It's really good. Okay. But but I would <laughs> I would watch watch the watch the Springsteen thing on Broadway. It's beautiful. And he talks about um, being raised Catholic and the memories of his childhood being raised in a New Jersey town by all these Catholic people. And, and there's a, there's some there's some absolutely gorgeous reflections on what that meant. And I don't, and then, but he goes through his whole life and talks about how he can't shake those memories, those foundational formative memories that they are ingrained in him. And I think that's one of the reasons I stay. I, I, I've been so profoundly affected and blessed by this tradition that to walk away from it would like lacerate my soul. Like I couldn't do it. And again, you know, you know, I'm owning my privilege and all of that. Because some women, perhaps in our tradition, obviously can't, couldn't have done it. You know, it's too upsetting because Church of Christ is more, more, uh, more conservative, and they have to leave. And I honor that. I just want to honor all that. Um, The other thing, and the other thing I would say is that you know, churches are. uh, I've found churches in my life that tend to be fairly functional. You know, they're not dysfunctional, toxic hierarchical kinds of situations they're not perfect but they're, they're they're not abusive they're not hurting people and so that's the other thing i would say is i've been able to find you know churches that are you know 
fairly functional. And that's the sad thing about it is like we hear so many stories of like dysfunctional churches, but but the little beautiful communities um, uh, all around a city that exists, they never get their they never get their stories told because you know what? They're nice to each other. <laughs> and they yep. get along with each other and they figure it out together. And those stories are, I think, more common than the abuse stories. Now, we have to call out the abuse, but the calling out of the abuse, church abuse, like the Church 2 movement, kind of creates a distorted perception of what a church experience is like. Uh, and, and, and so – you know, nobody tweets out like went to church today and had a lovely conversation with Miss Sue, an eighty-year-old woman. You know, like like I, I wouldn't know her if if I didn't go to church. But she's this beautiful saint. Like, you know, who who on social media cares about that story? Um, and yet, those are the to me those are the those are the stories of church. And so, to me, I've found more of those experiences than the bad. And so, that's fortunate. Um, on my part, that's not a great answer, but those are just bits of it. You know, I love the tradition. I've found healthy churches, um, and I've also benefited because of my privilege, and because of that, I'm able to, you know, uh, hang on. Yeah, I I appreciate the inadequacy of an answer for a question like that from afar, because. There's no way someone can describe exactly their experience in a paragraph or two through an email, and you know there's no simplistic answer for how to how to navigate that because I think, like you said, not everyone's church experience was like yours, not everyone's opportunities are like yours. So yeah, that's that's the answer I'm going to give next time I get that email. So thank you for that. If you can that just was write a, it down, that'd be that was kind of a helpful. long rambling answer. Well, if I just copy and paste, then they might not finish the whole email, but they'll feel like they've been heard. So that's that's what I'm looking for. No, uh, Richard, I feel like people heard this and they thought, you know what, post post progressive, maybe we're they're going to go next because there's there's always an addition. So after post progressive, it'll be post post progressive, and then you get to post Malone, who will be the singer for that group. Which you don't know who Post Malone is. No, I have no idea what you're talking about. You, but, you wrote about Lady Gaga. I feel like talking about pop stars is kind of in your wheelhouse. So that's my bad. I just I missed that one. It's fine. <laughs> well, um, if people missed you, I would recommend getting a copy of Trains, Jesus, and Murder, the Gospel According to Johnny Cash, and then make a trip out in May to Pepperdine, and they can see you in uh, in all your undyed haired glory because you're not you're not running away from getting older, and that's. It's good for you. Yeah, yeah. My my eyebrows are getting really big. I'm going for this kind of Gandalf look right now. Hmm. You know my gray eyebrows. They look nice. You know? you, yeah, your forehead seems very warm. The winter <laughs> is is not going to overwhelm you because you've got a warm <laughs> forehead. I'm sure that's the first time we've <laughs> talked about their eyebrows. You know, on on your podcast. You know, like uh, I don't know. I mean, I whoever heard that is going to be thankful for it, but. I kid you not. Here's how funny. Here's how funny this is. We were we were in San Francisco. We're walking down the street, past a guy. He looks at Jana, and he says, "It was his eyebrows, wasn't it?" <laughs> this guy like pegged my eyebrows from like twenty yards, and then said this to my wife. It was his eyebrows, wasn't it? And she's like, "What?" You know. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just telling you, you know. So now anybody who ever sees me in public could be just like fixated on my eyebrows, you know. Yeah. So they're, I mean, they're kind of mesmerizing. Yeah, yeah, they just, yeah. 
kind of draw you in. (laughs) Well, on that note, I'm truly apologetic that this is not a video podcast because I would love for people to experience what I'm experiencing right now. But nevertheless, hopefully they've enjoyed the auditory experience which you've shared with them. So Richard, thank you again. Pleasure. Yes, sir. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.